This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Quick to Listen, the Christianity Today podcast, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes and set aside time to explore the reality behind a major cultural event. I'm Caitlin Beatty. I'm print managing editor of Christianity Today magazine, and I'm looking into the eyes of my lovely co-host, Morgan Lee. Hey, Morgan. Hey, Caitlin. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. We are excited about this because this week we are joined by Andy Crouch. Andy is our colleague. He's an executive editor here at Christianity Today. He is also the author of three books. You may have read them, Culture Making, Plain God, Strong and Weak, which is the latest one that just came out. And he is also a public speaker who speaks around the world. Andy, great to have you here. I am glad to be here. So as our listeners know, most controversies come with complexity and tension. And every week we try to acknowledge those tensions and then work out as best as we can how Christians can respond. And this week we are very compelled to discuss the shooting at a popular gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida this past weekend. It left 49 people dead and 53 individuals wounded. And as I'm sure our listeners know, um, since the shooting, media narratives, social media responses have touched on many themes that are um, pressing and complicated for our nation, everything from hatred and violence against LGBT communities, uh, gun control, anti-Muslim sentiments in this country, whether prayer is an appropriate response to national tragedy, and if so, how and whether Christians with traditional views on marriage are complicit in violence done against LGTB persons. Now, there's a lot that we could talk about with this particular tragedy, but this week we really want to narrow in on the question of how we respond to and mourn national tragedies as both communities and individuals. Um, As we know, sadly, the Orlando shooting is just one of countless attacks in recent years just in this country alone, not including attacks in Paris um, and other parts of the world. So just last December, we mourned the San Bernardino shooting, the attack on Emanuel AME in Charleston one year ago uh, this week the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012, countless other attacks in public spaces. So how do we respond rightly when these tragedies rock our nations and our hearts? As we do every week, we want to start out with a gut check. And this is just getting our initial reactions to the news and then our reactions to the reactions to the news on the table so we can acknowledge them and then from there work out a better and deeper way to respond. So Andy, what was your gut reaction both to this news that we probably all saw starting on Sunday morning and then also seeing the responses on broadcast media and social media? I I had two reactions, one of which I think comes from being human and one of which comes from being a journalist, which is almost like not being human in a way. Um, (laughs) And the human reaction was, you know, just, oh, no. I mean, just horror, obviously. Saturday morning, I was just about to lead my family in prayer. Some Sundays, I hope it's allowed for an executive editor of CT to say this, some Sundays our family does not actually attend a church service at our congregation, but we stay home and do family prayer. And we were just about to pray. And Wisely or unwisely, I was looking at social media and just sort of checking in on the news and realized what had happened, what the likely scale and scope of it was, and just 
it was very hard, in fact, to then figure out even how to bring it up in prayer with my family uh, in the next hour. Uh, that was the first reaction, just horror, which I think is the right baseline human reaction to anything like this. And then the other reaction was, oh, we're going to have to say something about this. And just kind of perplexity and dismay at the, the fact that within 24 hours, we would have to have something to say, which we'll talk about. Uh, is, I almost feel like is at the heart of the problem is the need to have something to say when there's nothing to say. But but I knew, and within a couple hours, we were on Slack and so forth with some initial conversations about what to say, because that's our job as journalists. What about you, Morgan? How did you respond both to the news of the event itself and then seeing the reactions and media narratives of the event? Definitely rage at everything, I guess, uh, the actual violence itself, and then what the violence was going to provoke in people and watching someone be able to use such a a blunt object i guess to at the same time wield such imaginable like power to provoke all these types of thoughts and reactions and a lot of just dismay over that and then as far as the reactions to the reactions i tried to post as little of my own thoughts about anything besides retweeting people and then called up three different people during the day and Mm. processed how I felt and prayed with almost everyone on the phone about everything and then attended a vigil Mm. that night. I didn't hear about the story until Sunday afternoon after church, after lunch with a friend. And it's amazing how that had, it had already happened, but it hadn't come to me yet. And I was going about my Sunday in a very, peaceful, restful way and just incredible heartache at the scope at where it happened and then knowing what it would mean for our country and um, knowing that an event like this in my, you know, cynical journalist mind, seeing how the conversations tend to go after a national tragedy, that this would be used to drive people farther apart. I still don't necessarily have hope that a national tragedy like this can drive us into deep conversation with people who are different from us, with other Christians, but will only provoke suspicion and cynicism and tear us farther apart. I'm just going to say one other thing, too, just knowing the history of trauma against the LGBT community. I think there was just a sense of further anger that I felt about a sense that June is in many ways a celebratory month, but there's a celebration because of the fact that there's been past horrible things that have happened. And so thinking like, wow, that this happened during this month at this time against Mm -hmm. this community, the reverberations are that much stronger. So we want to get into the the main discussion. And I want to start with Uh, an editorial that you wrote, Andy, after the Sandy Hook shooting in 2012. And one of the ideas that you touched on is the way that media broadcasting and the constant need for information and analysis can actually prevent us from mourning rightly in silence and prayer after something that unspeakably horrible happens. Did Did we see media work in a similar way with the Orlando shooting and then specifically with social media, which are slightly different from broadcast media. Did they work in this in a similar way? Did they maybe prevent us from mourning in silence and prayer? Well, a couple thoughts. I mean, uh, you know what the, the basic thing that media substitutes for is presence. 
So we use media when we can't be present. So you and I actually right now are having an, an unmediated conversation, except that we're hearing each other through headphones to make the audio good for our listeners. So even that is introducing a level of mediation, right? That makes us strangely, uh, it complicates our presence with one another, but basically we're in the same room, but everyone listening to this is not in the room with us. And, and so we're using media to media means between, um, in the middle. And we're putting these devices and this technology in the middle between our embodied conversation that the three of us are having and, uh, you know, other people who might want to listen. And so all media works this way. And, it, you know, a telephone works this way. Uh, a, a video camera works this way. They substitute for some aspect of actual embodied presence. And it struck me, especially uh, I was able to put into words in the days after the Sandy Hook massacre, that that the one thing media are really bad at doing is the one thing that's really needed in the immediate wake of any trauma for any person or community. And that's the silence that is completely possible when you're present in the body, but is completely impossible to communicate through media or all but impossible. So we know um, those of us who have any kind of background or, or just have life experience in dealing with great grief, um, whether traumatic grief or other kinds of loss, that the last thing you need from someone, say you yourself have been experience, have experienced trauma, the last thing you need is for someone to start talking to you and, and trying to spin out words that try to account for your experience and say, oh, I know exactly what it's like to be in your situation. Well, no, you probably don't. I mean, there's all these terrible things you can say to someone in a moment of grief, and there's almost nothing that you actually can say, but the wonderful thing is you don't have to say anything. You, you can just be there. And if it's appropriate in many relationships and contexts, you, you can touch and you can embrace and you don't have to say a word. And that's the one thing you can't do on media uh, because that's called dead air <laughs> in radio and audio. Uh, and, and radio and audio don't tolerate dead air. Uh, video doesn't tolerate dead camera. Cameras have to move. We're very accustomed. We look at earlier, less sophisticated uses of video and, and it really bothers us as, as 21st century watchers that the camera stays still because motion is sort of the video equivalent of uh, signal. And so the more mediated the experience, actually, the less it's able to communicate embodied presence and, and especially silence. So the thing about social media is it makes us all broadcasters. Um, so there used to be a few people who would hear of a tragedy and think, oh, I have to react like that was the professional journalist's job. I'm sure there were editors at big national news organizations literally telling people, get on a plane right now. You're going to spend the next week in Orlando. It's our job to react. But now that we're all broadcasters, we've all got our little publishing empire on our, what I was, you know, social media of choice. And that all requires us to have something to say. When in the face specifically of tragedy, there is nothing to say. I really think there is nothing adequate to say. And certainly, there is not anything analytical to say in the first moments. And this is the other thing I think that, that media drive us toward is wanting an explanation. And that's not to say there isn't something we can learn and there aren't interpretive lenses that will help us frame what happens in any given tragedy, whether it's Adam Lanza in Sandy Hook or Omar Mateen in Orlando. But it, none of that is available to us in the first moments, hours, I would say really days or weeks after a tragedy. Like we've learned really important things about this shooter in the last 24 hours that we didn't know on Sunday that reinterpret and reframe potentially what we think we know. But media 
uh, and actually, I think this is interesting about social media is actually the interesting thing about visual media is it can convey emotion through expression. You so you get a bodily. Yes, you, you do get a, a sense of a person's of a face or presence. And so even in the way they conduct themselves, you could see grief, perhaps, or you could see shock or or paralysis of not knowing how to respond. But because our most of our forms of social media, not not all, like Snapchat and so forth, this would be a little different, but Facebook, Twitter, which is where I spend the most time, Lord have mercy, uh, is very text-based. Or, or animated GIF-based. Oh, yes, right. <laughs> of course. Don't forget the use of the animated GIF, Andy. <laughs> which is so useful in times of tragedy. I mean, like, break out the animated GIF and the memes at that moment. But it does it does offer more nuance, though, in the sense of like, when, when people do use a GIF, there's something that they're not able to put yeah, yeah. into words. Totally. But it also flattens. It also flattens a response into a pop culture reference from like you know from the real housewives of orange county or it just seems disrespectful to the actual emotion at hand so maybe the animated part then can feel that way i do know after the paris attacks there were some um, drawings that were circulating on social media that indicated a sense of like sorrow that was communicated with the eiffel tower And the French flag, and that actually seemed to communicate the sadness that was being felt far better than just saying, I'm sad about this. And if we go back a couple months ago to the Paris attacks, I took a stab at defending some of the folks who had used the, the French flag filter on Facebook to alter their photos. And there'd been quite a bit of just, you know, this is more armchair trying to comfort people and doesn't actually take that much effort to do that. And I actually found a lot of value in people changing that because it was almost acknowledging their limitations and recognizing that they may not have something to say, but that they wanted to show and make an effort of solidarity. And I remember reading comments from French people who were moved by when they would go onto Facebook and see the number of avatars that were Mm -hmm. the color of the French flag. It almost sounds like what we're getting at is that lacking the ability to be present, to be bodily present with someone after tragedy, a visual medium that is not word oriented can get at the depth, can actually communicate. There are no words. And I actually, I think that's very profound, Morgan. I think you're really onto something that it was actually in the limitations of that symbolism, just changing the overlay of colors on your own avatar. That's actually a more adequate response than trying to spin out words or even something that's animated and plays out through time. That is, that has that visual quality of of movement. Uh, This is what art does. I mean, art is a very profound human way of responding to tragedy. And like, I think, I mean, I don't know if this reference means anything to anybody, but uh, th- this kind of semi-famous painting by, by Picasso, I can't remember the name of it, these three figures on a blue background. It's one of the most profound paintings of grief. They're kind of huddled together, and yet they're disconnected from one another. And like a, a static image like that actually has more power than any words or that any, than any moving picture, and it's precisely its limitations. The problem is that I think social media and all media demand this kind of just constant elaboration that is not necessary when you're uh, when you're present in person and that maybe isn't necessary when you have a work of art that can bear it. I think part of what your reaction to the gifts is these these things we turn to, these artifacts of popular culture just don't have enough depth to actually bear the tragedy, so they trivialize. So in a way, I mean, a flag 
is a very powerful, very dense, complex, compressed symbol. And to apply that at a moment of tragedy is actually to do something very profound that goes beyond words and that doesn't take a lot of words. The problem is uh, there's this kind of just constant, the maw is never ending of wanting more reaction, more response. I think there's a dynamic on social media after major events like these where if you don't say something, oh, gosh. right? where if you, if you actually try to practice silence, you seem callous. Why aren't you talking about this? Why aren't you expressing your grief? Why aren't you expressing, you know, sorrow over this where you actually might be experiencing profound sorrow and grief in that moment and don't want to muddle the narrative with your own interpretation, with your own analysis. And yet there's no way to show solidarity without saying something. That's the conundrum that we're in when we're communicating in disembodied ways. The facts and the policy part is always sadly hilarious to me in the sense that I don't really know anyone that actually wants either of those things after a tragedy. I think most people want other types of human responses, and yet there's so much pressure. It was interesting when, Andy, you were talking about why this happens, and I don't think people care like why it happened or what the motive of the perpetrator was in particular, but they do want to know why their son or daughter was murdered when they were out on a Saturday night. Like, why did that actually happen? And to me, and there's nothing that the news media can actually say, nor are they equipped to say during that time that will ever answer that question of why that happened. And so tragedies can't really be given satisfactory responses Mm -hmm. whatsoever. And the news media isn't the platform that they can actually acknowledge that too. I guess there would be something that'd be very honest if they said, here's what we can do, which is we can tell you particular facts that happen and we'll give you more facts as we've confirmed them. But we cannot actually, you know, affect this hollowness that you're going to feel and the Mm -hmm. sense of disunity that you may be experiencing as our country comes along. Now, I'm sure some of our listeners might say, well, in order to prevent this from happening again, in order to prevent, you know, someone going into a gay club with an assault rifle, we have to start talking about changes that need to be made on either the cultural or religious or legislative side to prevent this from happening. Often after these tragedies, we hear we need to have a conversation about gun control, which apparently we still need to have a really long conversation. And maybe it's that we don't know how to have the conversation on a national level. So it's it's relatively easy to go on to Facebook or Twitter and, and pronounce something about gun control. But What would we say to a defense of analysis or trying to start a conversation via media after a tragedy? Uh, I think that question and challenge is very real, and I don't want to glibly answer it. And in a way, that's uh, also the answer I want to give, which is that if I have a ready-made answer for any truly complex reality... I'm an ideologue. (laughs) That's someone who's already made up their mind, already has a cognitive grid through which they see everything. And the times when ideology is most offensive is when it's confronted with dense, complex, and tragic realities and uses them as pretexts to advance a pre-existing cognitive grid. And and so even you're asking that question, you know, I, I have a certain ideology about media, which is I tend to think we're all going to hell because we're using them. I mean, I really think media and social media, we may, we may really be underestimating how, um, how damaging they are to our, our shared life. And, uh, and, and to me, it's a subset of technology and the way that technology substitutes for the body. 
and substitutes for embodied presence. So I have this kind of cognitive grid, which is why you invited me on the show, I, <laughs> because I I have some things ideologue. to say, right? <laughs> and, and I've thought it through, and I have some perspectives that, that do give me a kind of uh, purchase on some aspect of reality. But when you challenge me with that observation on behalf of other people who say, well, now if now is not the time to start this conversation, when do we ever get to do it? If my reaction is immediately to say, oh, no, I can come up with a great answer to that, mm. I'm, I'm actually not sitting with the challenge of that. And I think tragedy, and especially when it involves lethal violence, which fundamentally violates uh, the thing that God most desires for his image bearers, which is that they live. I do not the de- desire the death of a person, but I desire for them to live, God says in the Bible. And tragedy, uh, vi- violence, sorry, specifically d- desecrates that desire for life. That is the wrong moment <laughs> uh, to raise your ideological point, in my, in my view. Now, so then when will it ever happen if we don't take advantage of these moments? I think that underestimates the value of positive leadership and culture that raises over time the temperature of an issue such that it becomes salient without requiring trauma to jumpstart the ideological power. I don't know if I can come up with a great example right now at this moment, but I do think there are examples of uh, that's what real leaders do is rather than just reacting, they actually act in such a way to say this needs to become a national conversation. And then if you're already doing that, then when terrible things happen, they sometimes can serve to amplify it. But I think it's the wrong moment to say, now that you're really upset, please convert to my ideological point of view. No matter how much I may agree with that, I agree with a lot of the ideological points of view that are being advanced, but I think it's the wrong moment to do it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Jamel Bowie this week for Slate has a really wonderfully thoughtful article. I think it's written mostly to gun control supporters, but it's pretty practical to every American. And the fact that it talks about the hard work of institution building and what exactly gave the NRA the right to be able to speak in these moments and then to rally their base so effectively and kind of unpacks exactly how things get done in the U.S. and how you have to go through this long method to affect not only the elites, but also the grassroots at the same time and to be able to affect the different levers of change. And so if anyone thinks wants to like look into that more, I highly recommend that article as far as just the mentality of how to get things done in America. The one thing I wanted to acknowledge in these situations, in my church a couple of weeks ago, I attend a house church on the west side of Chicago, and we were talking about shootings that had happened in my neighborhood and ways that our church might respond to that. And I left the conversation feeling like we did not do a, a really adequate job framing what we could accomplish in that conversation and what the, the purpose is, the purpose and the outcome were supposed to be, because there was absolutely no way that one church meeting was going to solve gun violence in my neighborhood, which has afflicted large parts of Chicago, even though at the same time, it's unlikely that gun violence in my neighborhood will end without these form of meetings happening. And one thing that I think we could have done that I think might have been helpful would just to have gone around the room and to hear how people were personally being affected by a shooter running through their backyard afterwards or 
you know, coming in through the back of the house because you don't want to have to deal with some of the stuff that's going on on your block and allow people to bring their emotions and validating those first before getting into some type of like prescriptive solutions of what could be done, especially if people feel like they can't actually talk about their fear correctly or their sadness or personal effects that they have to that. And you're asking them to just place all that aside. That's not actually going to be a side. It's going to come out in other things. And so starting by acknowledging that first seems most important. Yeah. And I think that's easily applicable to what happened in the past week that there was there might have been an initial outpouring of here's my emotional response to the news, but there wasn't any space left aside to and and in fact, we don't have that space in media or social media to name how the tragedy has affected us and has affected our hearts. It we we really wanted to rush to prescription. And you and I talked about this, Morgan, yesterday, that this is also perhaps a distinctly American uh, pattern where when something happens that is that is truly on some level outside of our control, that we we want to try to wrest that control back. And the way that we do that is through analysis and interpretation Mm -hmm. and outrage. And we we struggle to admit that in the face of tragedy, we have power taken away from us. And no amount of analysis is going to bring that back. There's this almost sense of like suffering that Americans will have to enter into, though, to be able to to, to react in some of the ways that we're talking about right now, because we're essentially asking Americans to give up a large sense of who we are. I literally believe that the story that we have, many of us have told ourselves is that we can change things, we can affect things, um, that our hard work will get us somewhere. And if we're going to rewrite that somehow, because we want to be better at how we respond to this type of stuff, it means that this other story is going to have to die. And, and I would, I would just frame that in terms of a technological vision that says there are levers of control over the world that we through analysis and, and tech kinds of technical power can access. And, that will free us from essentially deep, deeply, ultimately from tragedy and even more deeply, ultimately from death. And that's a lie. It's not true. And genuine human life does not involve this sort of endless quest for the, to find the right technical levers, whether a policy or economics or whatever that will fix this problem. Your use of the word technology is literally tool in that regard. So it's not necessarily digital. Technology. Yeah, and, or certainly not just digital technology, though I, I do think modern technology seems to deliver levels of control that previous era tools did not. Tools and technology aren't quite the same thing. Tools re- still require skill. They still have limits. But technology is this sort of, it's partly a dream of a way of using tools that would not actually ask us to change in any way and yet would change the world around us in all the ways that we prefer. Mm. Technology is a dream, but it's an amazingly partially realized dream that has us all thinking if we just could sacrifice a little more to this god of technology, we could actually have the control we want in the world. For more, read Playing God by Andy Crouch, <laughs> out from University Press in 2012. Thir- 13. 13. <laughs> so one of the most common responses that I've seen to both the shooting and then the reaction to the shooting, obviously, as, as people of faith, one of the first things that we're, that we want to do after a national tragedy is to cry out to God in in the form of prayer. And sometimes that prayer is wordless. You know, it's, it's just sitting, Groaning. sitting with God. You know, we can't even put to words what we're feeling and experiencing. And yet 
the responses this week have been, you know, prayer is in in a way a form of inaction. It's a it's a form of being passive in the face of tragedy that instead we need your legislative action. We need your calls for change on a community level, on a social level. And I want to I want us to talk about prayer as how we respond to the tragedy and loss of life. Are there ways that prayer does actually inhibit us from action that that softens us to actually make any possible change in our lives, in our communities? Are there other actions that are necessary in addition to prayer? Is it appropriate for Christians to say, you know, my thoughts and prayers are with the victims of this tragedy? It seems to me that that in the immediate moments, in the immediate moments after any actually terrible or wonderful thing, there are no words and there's no action. The only thing is contemplation. Uh, that's the only thing you can genuinely do. And that takes the form of thoughts when it's just my own reflection on it. But if there is someone outside me who is personal and empathic and engaged with the world, who made the world, then I would want to share those thoughts with that person. And that's prayer. And so that's why I said after San Bernardino, I get why people are very cynical. I I totally get why people are cynical about politicians saying my thoughts and prayers, because I don't know that we really believe those are sincerely offered often. But the problem is it's, it's kind of a black box because you wouldn't be able to tell if it was sincere because the truth is if that politician were being honest, the only thing they would have to offer is thoughts and prayers. So yes, maybe they're being very insincere and and maybe some staff person just pulled out the playbook and tweeted that. But if that politician actually were honestly saying the only thing any genuine human being can say in the hours after a tragedy, it's thoughts and prayers. <laughs> is that inaction? To say that we should act instead of praying to me is idolatry. It's to say that we can change and fix the world and that this God you guys believe in can't do anything. A lot of our neighbors believe that. They don't believe there is a personal, empathic, engaged reality, ultimate reality. And if that is the case, then indeed prayer is quite vain and ineffective. But if, in fact, the world is created and sustained by one who is infinitely more empathic than I am, infinitely more resourceful than I am, infinitely more committed to the flourishing of the world than I actually am, <laughs> with all my little sympathies and, and affiliations and affinities, then the most important thing I can do as a creature is reconnect myself to that creator beg that creator to act, complain to that creator when he, let's say, doesn't seem to be acting. I had the biggest shout shouting match of my life with God the morning after the Port-au-Prince earthquake in Haiti in 2010. And I, I cursed at God in I yelled at God. I complained to God, you know, partly because there was no human agency, unlike these these atrocities that at least you can blame a human being. Who do you blame for an earthquake, if not the creator? The Bible absolutely sanctions that kind of engagement with our Creator, faithful engagement, and the broad term for it is lament. And if you don't do that first, you are cutting yourself off from the source of true action and true human being. And our neighbors who don't share our faith will never agree with this, <laughs> but that's the core Christian belief, is if I'm not connected to this God, any action I do will be in vain, and the things I think are going to fix things will have unintended consequences. I, not being infinite, not being omniscient, will will never be able to anticipate. And I'll actually end up doing just as much harm as good with my prayerless action. I think that the the critiques against prayer have been actually been a really positive addition to the conversation, even if people of uh, faith have felt 
attacked at different moments. And part of that is that I think that questioning your own motives is a appropriate reaction to how you are reacting and to, to actually consider that you are a public official um, who people are looking to and acknowledging your own power and influence in a situation to kind of guide people. Um, I don't think that there's a reason why people should just accept platitudes from people and expect that that would be enough. And I think that this is just another way of holding public servants accountable to a particular degree. I also think that there's a decent number of examples in scripture, um, not to mention words from Jesus, about going to your room and closing the door and praying. And that broadcasting that you're saying it out loud, yeah, I, I understand why people are rubbed the wrong way about it. And I think that, again, that's why Jesus brought this up 2,000 years ago, is that people would, were going to be rubbed the wrong way by people loudly praying. In fact, there's even that story where he calls out mm -hmm. um, a Pharisee who's praying very loudly. <laughs> oh, I'm totally with you on that. I mean, I, I didn't tweet a single thing about the Port-au-Prince earthquake. I just went to my closet and raged at God and then asked what I could do and how I could help and that kind of thing. And I agree. And Jesus is very harsh, and the Bible is very harsh, on people who have a responsibility for the common good and for justice who make a show of piety without also acting for the common good. I'm just saying, if you were to say anything at all publicly in the moment after a tragedy, the only sincere thing you could say is, I'm praying. Because no one can introduce a bill of legislation that adequately deals with whatever happened in the moments after a tragedy. Now, I'm not talking about a month later or even sometimes just a few days later, as when Nikki Haley changed her mind about the Confederate flag and said, in the days after Charleston, we are going to change this policy totally right thing for a public leader to do. But in those initial moments, and it's really why we should be extremely slow to tweet and quick to listen, I believe is a phrase somebody uses. <laughs> so the, we, we received a question from our Facebook live feed, which we've been doing this particular episode. And this particular watcher had read Andy's essay after the San Bernardino shootings on the nature of prayer after tragedy and is asking, you know, several weeks or months after the initial tragedy, what should we be doing? And what happens when the people who initially said, oh, I'm praying for you, or I'm praying about this, seem to not be engaged on actually addressing problems insofar as they can as an individual? I mentioned the Haiti earthquake of 2010. What I did is I went into my calendar and set a reminder for January 2011 to start giving to organizations in Haiti in 2011. This is a little different from political action relating to, say, gun control or something like that after an episode of gun violence. But one of the huge problems is that you'll have these massive mediated uh, experiences of trauma, like a, a huge earthquake, and everyone starts giving out of impulse and a sense of sympathy. And then a year later, they stop. And this literally did happen. I know organizations that are now bankrupt because they relied on the giving in 2010 and couldn't sustain the work that they were trying to do. So I did not give a single dime to Haiti Relief in 2010. And in 2011, we started giving to some organizations that do sustainable long-term stuff there. And I literally had a reminder in my calendar to do that. So if, if there is an episode of gun violence, let's say, and you are really convinced of the need for a new uh, kind of gun control or, you know, gun regulation, I would l literally put, I'd put a three month, six month, nine month, and 12 month reminder in your calendar. And on each of those days, uh, message the office of an elected official who represents you and ask them, what are you doing about this issue? And of course, get your friends involved because, it, it, you know, one person is never enough. I would plan to do it after the initial ideological 
excitement has died down because the truth is nothing almost almost never does anything come of that and when something good does come in the immediate aftermath of a tragedy it's actually because people laid the groundwork for it over decades so be part of the decades-long engagement and and literally set goals for yourself to participate in the political process yourself but not the day after i think you'll actually get more done uh three months from now chances are with stuff that's not man-made in this instance there is someone or some type of ideology that you believe is responsible for this or so and then by that extension the person that who believes this particular ideology or believes this policy and i think that it's worth your time to go about trying to figure out how to build a relationship with a person it doesn't have to be with the entire group but a person who holds a view that may be contrary to yours so for example if you're in favor of gun control finding someone who's very adamant about gun rights and at this point some of the heat from the actual incident will have cooled down a little bit and then coming to some place where you can exhibit genuine curiosity and a desire for relationship and not a desire to convert, but to understand where the other person is coming from and engage with them and say, like, this type of stuff keeps happening and I keep feeling this type of way. What have I been missing? Why do people like me really trigger you to feel this type of way? Mm-hmm. And and nurturing that relationship in a strong way that kind of seems of outside. And, you know, you can use this particular incident as like oh this is a a reminder to me that this is a relationship i need to to build but it's not about trying to score political points or make Mm -hmm. yourself feel better but it's about genuinely trying to be in relationship well this has been a really good conversation and we want to invite all of our listeners to add their own thoughts and perspectives both on facebook at facebook.com slash ct podcast as well as twitter we are at ct podcasts if there are specific scripture passages theological points social agenda points that you want to make we definitely encourage you to add your own thoughts to the conversation we are going to do a special themed precious moment this week as our regular listeners know every week we end the episode by naming one person place thing idea Justin Bieber song that's making us really happy. I doubt that's going to be Andy's precious moment for the week. How did you guess? But we are actually going to talk about our summer vacations. I think all of us are probably taking some time off, including Andy, who is going to Colorado for a whole week with his family next week. And we want to name one thing that we especially like to do on our summer vacation that makes us especially happy. I don't know if I'll get to do this in Colorado because we're flying out there, but any day and any vacation day that I'm on my bicycle is a good, good day. And so vacations are for long bike rides, hard bike rides, trying to beat my personal best bike rides. That'll be on the agenda later this summer up in Maine where we spend a couple of weeks. Where can listeners find more of your writing? I, I'm not as good as I should be at keeping up uh, with posting at all, but uh, most of it is at andycrouch.com with a dash, andy-crouch.com. And in spite of our whole conversation, I do occasionally tweet at AHC for Andrew Hirschfeld Crouch, my name, AHC. What about you, Morgan? Favorite thing to do on your summer vacation? Eat food and walk. <laughs> Both of those things are superb, though. I was When I was in Columbia last summer, I definitely know that I was eating any piece of street food that someone was selling and just enjoying (laughs) walking around the city and it was warm outside and people can find me on twitter at m-e-p-a-y-n-l well as i've contemplated what i enjoy doing on summer vacation the image that comes to mind is a very cold 
IPA in a glass shared with my parents and my brother. My parents did not drink while I was growing up, but they've gotten into the craft beer movement, (laughs) if you will. So we always enjoy drinking a pint on the back porch when I'm at home in Ohio. So I'm looking forward to doing that next month. And you can find me on Twitter at Caitlin Beatty. And that is it. We are grateful that you have listened to another episode of Quick to Listen. This show is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Allred. And special thanks to Kate Shellnut, who has joined us in the studio today. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, please make sure to rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us a lot. See you next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.